0: Good morning, New Life. My name is Will. Happy Easter. Happy Resurrection Sunday. Uh, Glad that you're here. Glad that you can uh, join us for worship. And if you are visiting us for the first time, or maybe this is one of the few times that you've come to church, I'm so thankful that you guys are here. Stick around if you are able to be able to hang out and fellowship and hopefully get to know one another. Um, Excited for you all to worship with us here today. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open up to the Gospel of Mark. I'm going to read a short section in chapter 16, verses 1 to 8. And if you are able, I want to ask you to please stand for the reading of God's Word. Mark chapter 16, verses 1 to 8. This is God's Word. It's about what Christianity calls the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed... Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large, and entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And you could take your seats at this time. Well, Easter is oftentimes thought about with respect to Easter eggs and Easter bunnies. But if you've grown up in the church or you're familiar with Christianity, especially in America, what they say is that many people, even if you're a believer or not, are familiar with the Easter story. Um, They say maybe many of us who are here today are what we call CEOs, that you are Christmas and Easter only attenders in church. But that also means that you're familiar with the story, doesn't it? I mean, you know that Christmas is about the birth of Jesus and that Easter is about the resurrection of Jesus. But what I want to share with you here today is something a little bit more, actually at the risk of being uh, provocative, a little bit more argumentative because I want to make the challenge and have a discussion with you to say, if you really want to discover, if you really want to explore Christianity, the one thing you have to really wrestle with is, what Easter stands for, and that's going to be the resurrection. It's actually really difficult to overstate the importance of the resurrection, because if you want to be intellectually honest, and this is any worldview, any perspective, if you want to be intellectually honest, you want to be able to define Christianity on Christianity's terms. And if you want to reject Christianity, which you have every right to, at least you want to reject it on Christianity's terms. And when you look at Christianity and what the Bible says, on its own terms, it says Christianity stands or falls on whether or not the resurrection happened. It's that simple. If the resurrection happened, then you have a eternal life and hope. You have an answer to one of the deepest needs of humanity. But if the resurrection didn't happen, the millions of people throughout generations and churches today, you and I even now, are absolutely wasting our time. Christianity stands or falls on the resurrection, and that's on its own terms. Let me try to make my point really quickly. This guy, the Apostle Paul, he wrote this letter called 1 Corinthians, and in chapter 15, verses 3 to 4, this is what Paul says. For I delivered to you as of first importance, in other words, foundational, primary, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day, That's resurrection in accordance with the scriptures. He said this is of first importance. And then if you roll down to the end of chapter 15 and verse 14, it says this. And if Christ has not been raised, if he didn't rise, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. It's empty, it's pointless. You and I are wasting our time here today if Jesus wasn't resurrected. And so I want to talk about the resurrection, to take this opportunity to wrestle with you, with you, this question of Christianity. And there are two questions that i want to just answer or at least kind of sprinkle thoughts about two common objections about christianity that if you google this if you engage skeptics or non-believers these are very common understandable smart people that bring these objections to christianity and they look like this first did this really happen and behind that question is saying is the bible really true is it literal can you trust it there seem to be a lot of errors there But they're saying, did the resurrection really happen? And then secondly, they'll ask this question, isn't Christianity too exclusive? Now, shouldn't everybody go to heaven? So those are the two questions that we could wrestle with. Did this really happen? And is it too exclusive? No, the truth claims of Christianity, they're so narrow. They create division. They create oppression. And so I want to dialogue with you about these two questions that at least we could sprinkle A little bit of the thoughts and dialogue about these two questions surrounding these objections. So let's look at the first one. Did the resurrection really happen? Was it historical or was it legend? Was it made up by the disciples or did it really happen and the disciples were recording history? That's what we'll take a look at. And I want to say this in terms of like being able to dialogue with you. I think that the burden of proof isn't just on Christianity. I think the burden of proof is both on non-Christians and Christians. Because when you read Mark 16, 1-8, you have to make sense of why they wrote it the way they did. And I'm going to explain to you why. I'm going to give you my thoughts, but the burden of proof is both on skeptics and Christians. And so I want to be able to dialogue and really be able to engage in a conversation to say, well, here's our thoughts. Why was Mark 16 written in the way that it was written? Because the writers of the New Testament back in the days of the New Testament, they wrote history differently. They wrote biographies differently. We think history is factual and chronological, but that's not how the writers thought about history. They weren't writing chronologically. They wrote, they misplaced and replaced and moved around the events, and it was absolutely understood to be history. So let's talk about this. Did this really happen? Is this really, one way to ask the question is, is this a legend or is it history? Is it what Karl Marx has said, this is something that was made up by humans to comfort ourselves, that religion was the opiate of the masses? Or was this really a historical, factual, evidential account? And so you have to have arguments on both ends. And this is what Christianity has to say. Read with me verse 1. It says, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might anoint Jesus' body. By the way, This isn't, the spices weren't to embalm the body, like the Egyptians, they did that when Jesus was buried. They bought spices, so it was really about their love and devotion to bring, it was really expensive, especially for these three women, they're showing their devotion to Jesus. But here's the point that I want to try to make. These women, and in fact, in all four Gospels, the primary and the number one witnesses of all four Gospels that witnessed the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, they were all women. In fact, these women, their names were repeated throughout the Gospel of Mark. Chapter 15, verse 40, chapter 15, 47, and then Mark 16, 1. Mark writes these names down and he's redundant because this one scholar, Richard Bauckham says, the reason Mark does this is because the way history was written back then is that they write specific names, eyewitnesses, and they're redundant. They write it over and over again. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and Salome, three times. That's absolutely remarkable. Do you know why? Because in the culture back then, if you wanted to write a legend and you wanted the legend to be accepted by the people, you would never ever use women as your primary witnesses. It was a patriarchal chauvinistic society. Your key witnesses always had to be educated, powerful men. But Mark put three women, and a bunch of women, all four Gospels did, as their primary witnesses. And the only reason that they did this was probably because that's just what happened. They're recording history. Because if you're making up a story, you would never use women, you would use men. In fact, this one Greek philosopher, Celsus, who absolutely hated Christianity, was trying to disprove Christianity, and he said this. The first witnesses, a hysterical female, as you say, and perhaps some other one of those who were deluded by some sorcery. That's the low view of women that that culture had. And so if you don't believe that this is historical, you thought, okay, Mark 16, that's a legend. Then you have to, the burden proof is on you. Why did they use women as primary witnesses? I'm saying it's because that's absolutely what happened. Women witnesses, according to the scholar N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright says there was enormous pressure, probably on the gospel writers, enormous pressure, to not put women in their account because it's not credible in that culture. Now, there was an allusion in John 19 to other witnesses. There weren't just women there, the women were primary, they were the first. But in John 19, there was Joseph of Arimathea and there was Nicodemus, two educated, well-connected men. If you wanted to create a legend and say, okay, here gives some veracity, here gives some credibility to my story, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Two men, educated, connected, rich. They're the best witnesses, but the gospel writers don't do this. They mention them, but their primary witnesses, Mary Magdalene, Mary Mother of Joseph, Mary Mary, uh, Salome, you know, there's a bunch of women that are accounted for, and it's always highlighting these eyewitnesses to give credibility to the story. The reason... It's because that's what happened there's no other reason for mark or any gospel writer to put women as their primary witnesses unless that's what happened that's how they recorded it you know they say that this old phrase i'll i'll believe it when i see it an eyewitness account and the gospel writers they place a lot of emphasis on eyewitnesses seeing is believing and in the gospels especially in mark the women were always the subjects of the seeing verbs seeing is believing Eyewitness accounts. That's why Bachem again said the women saw the entire events of Jesus. They saw where he was laid in the tomb. On Sunday, they went to see the tomb. Verse 4, they saw that the stone was rolled away. Verse 5, they saw the angel sitting on the right side. They saw that the tomb was empty in verse 5. So all the verbs of seeing had women as their subject because they were eyewitnesses' accounts. Clearly, Mark is using... These women as eyewitness accounts. So, how do you account for that? I'm saying it's because this is absolutely historical. And this is just sprinkling because, at the sake of time, there's so many different arguments. You know, there's, you now how did it catapult a movement that spanned centuries and generations? Legends don't have that ability. How are there 500 witnesses of Jesus' resurrection in First Corinthians? You could go to the people who saw them. 500 people can be delusional but this is absolutely the way that Mark has recorded his story because it's historical. There's no other reason to include women in here. Maybe I could say this before we go to our second point. There's this book that I was looking and reading in preparation for this message. It was written by this woman, Rebecca McLaughlin, and she wrote this book, very helpful, called Jesus Through the Eyes of Women. And she's going through the account and saying, can you imagine what it would be like for women to be the primary witnesses of Jesus' death and resurrection. And that Christianity is built on their witness. You know, they were saying that even back then, the most terrible way to die was going to be through crucifixion. And some Greek philosophers were saying you can't watch a crucifixion because it was so horrible, that it will taint you, you'll feel dirty. And That's all the more telling that the people who were seeing intentionally gazing at the crucifixion were women. Now, can you imagine Mary, the mother of Jesus, is hard enough to, as a parent, if you're a parent here today, God bless you, but if you're a parent, how hard it would be to see your child sick, how much harder it would be to see your child pass away. Imagine Mary sitting there, standing there before the cross, seeing her son crucified for the sins of the world. What heartache, what anguish, what was going on in her thoughts and her emotion, the pain, the suffering that Jesus went through. That's why they're the first witnesses, because there's an experience to understand Jesus through the eyes of women. Now, McLaughlin, she she goes on to write, and she learned that elderly people, they say, on the last days of their clinical life on earth, they oftentimes cry out for their mothers, even at the old age when they're dying, because they're retreating to a childlike need for comfort. So even women and men who are old, about to pass, They have an innate desire to be comforted by their parents, so they cry out for mommy. Jesus, on his last days, hanging on the cross, also cries out for mommy. But when you look at John 19, he doesn't cry out for Mary, his mother, to comfort him. Jesus, hanging on the cross in his last moments, cries out to his mother to make sure that she's taken care of. Says, woman... Which is a very respectful term woman behold your son and then jesus on the cross goes to the disciples said, please take her in the house completely opposite and reverse of how you and i will be when we get old we'll cry out for our mom and dad for comfort in our last days jesus cries out to his mom on his last day to comfort her because when mary looked up and beheld her son jesus just like you and i do at that very moment upon the cross we realize that Jesus is truly the one who cares for you and me, who has died for you to forgive you of your sins. Jesus cries out for his parents, but not like the way you and I do in terms of wanting comfort. Jesus wants to comfort you and me and comfort his mom. Jesus, he cried out to his dad because of the pain and anguish of suffering hell and wrath for your sins and mine. Jesus is completely opposite in the way that you and I lived because he's giving us what we call eternal life. And if you believe in him, if you believe that this story was historical and you believe that Jesus has an answer for you to life in a way that nothing else in this world can give you, then and only then, maybe, just maybe, you can be open to it and just give it a shot. Because that's Jesus' heart for you. And this leads us to our second point. The first one, does this really happen? Well, the burden of proof is on both of us. This is the second question. Is Christianity too narrow? Now, doesn't everybody go to heaven on all people really good? Let me try to explain this argument a little bit. You know, you can read it in any uh, theological book. Is Christianity Too Exclusive? It goes something like this. You know, if there's different ways to go about the argument, but some say, um, can't we just all get along? Religion caused a lot of difficulty, a lot of death, a lot of pain. You know, Christians, you guys are so, so narrow. You can't believe Jesus. Is Jesus really the only way, truth, and life? Is that the only way to go to heaven? Doesn't everybody go to heaven? You know, doesn't everybody have a part of the truth? Whether you're Buddhist or Muslim or Islam, everyone has part of the truth, you know, just everybody goes to heaven. Well, the one thing I just want to remember, if you want to be intellectually honest, let's think about this. The one thing I'm trying to say is that everybody is exclusive. We say the only way to go to heaven is going to be through Jesus. But if somebody says everybody has an element of truth except everyone, that statement in of itself is equally exclusive, isn't it? Because it excludes me. If you say everyone has the element of the truth and everyone goes to heaven, you're going to exclude Orthodox Jews. You're going to exclude Muslims. You're going to exclude Protestant Christians, Catholics. So that statement of itself, which sounds on the surface level very inclusive and warm, everybody has an element of the truth, that statement of itself is exclusive. So we're going to work on this premise. Everyone is exclusive. The question is, how exclusive are you? And I want to argue that Christianity's exclusivity It's far more hopeful and loving. It's much more inclusive in our exclusivity than other religions and worldviews. Christianity's exclusiveness is far more comforting, far more loving, far more inclusive than any other religions. Let me me try to get it this way. D.A. Carson, this New Testament scholar, he was talking about evangelism, and he says, even he said, One of the biggest concerns about Christianity among college students is that they have a hard time with the exclusive claims of Christianity. And they say, surely you don't believe that some people go to heaven and some people go to hell. And then he gives his dialogue, and this is the point I'm trying to make. The idea is that surely you don't believe that everybody goes to heaven, do you? Surely you must believe that some people must go to hell. Now, this is just talking, engaging with a non-Christian. If you really press them, they don't really believe. You may not really believe if we press you that everyone goes to heaven. I mean, Hitler, Stalin, the worst rapist and murderer out there. Do you really believe in your heart of hearts that everyone goes to heaven? And then usually when you press them, it goes into conversation. It's like, okay, okay, wait, maybe not everyone. Then you ask them, well, on what basis do some people go and some people don't? And they usually come out, well, some people are really good. They pay their taxes. They help. They they have jobs. They give money to philanthropic efforts. Some people are really good, and some people are really bad. You know, the the murderers, the the thieves, the rapists, the extortionists, they're all really bad people, but the good people, they go to heaven. And that's how they actually divert and dichotomize and separate the people who go to heaven and hell. And this is where you come in and say, well, Christianity is very different. Christianity doesn't say good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. Christianity says everyone, you and I, we're also really bad. We're all bad. None of us deserve to go to heaven. And so the distinction is not whether you're good or whether you're bad. The distinction is, are you prideful or are you humble? The distinction is, like, the only people who get to go to heaven is not based on your intellect or your your, your purchasing power. The difference is, can you call out to Jesus for help? Can you cry out to God for mercy? Because the murderer can cry out just like the thief on the cross but also the Pharisee and educated cry out for mercy, and both of them can go to heaven. So it's actually radically inclusive because it's not based on anything you've done. If you say, well, only good people go to heaven, then you try with all your might to be good through your moral efforts and through your generosity and through your kindness, and that means you merit it and you earn it, and that makes some people better than others innately. But Christianity says, no, 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 we're all like bad. We're all sinful. The only way that makes a distinction between those who go to heaven and hell are those who cry out for the mercy of Jesus. So whether you actually educated and went to the best schools in America, or whether you're uneducated, and you never went to any school, and you came up, even this is a hard one, you came up in a broken home, maybe you were, you're hurting, you're abused, you were, you've been in, you were born into a situation that wasn't your fault. How do you make sense of that? Well, we're all on the same playing field. The only difference are those who call out for Jesus for help. So everyone's exclusive. I think Christianity's exclusivity is a little bit more loving, a little bit more hopeful. Let me try to show you why. Read from the verses 6 to 7. Christianity gives an exclusivity that's really hopeful, loving, and the most inclusive. Verse 6 to 7 says, don't be alarmed. No, the women come up, they see the angel. He says, don't be alarmed, don't be scared. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He was risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid laid him but go tell his disciples and peter he's going ahead of you into galilee there you will see him just as he told you now there's a quick note it's really that verse seven is interesting when i prepare a message just the first step i do is that i'll print out the bible passage and i read it through a couple of times and i go through that note that passage and i make notes and when i did it through the first run through in preparation for this message right in verse seven it says go tell his disciples." And Peter. And I made a little note there and I wrote it down and I put a question mark. Why did they say and single out Peter? Let me try to show you why. Peter is special, he's unique. This commentator, James Edwards, he says about this verse these are remarkable words of encouragement, they're remarkable words of grace. Because if you didn't know Peter, Peter's the face, he's the poster child of rejection and failure. But the failure of the disciples, the flight of the disciples, they didn't have the last word. Jesus has the last word. In other words, the disciples failed, but Jesus' plan continues in spite of human failure. So Peter's a unique person. He's he's absolutely a picture of failure, of rejection, of lack of faith. And then I think Mark includes him, especially because he's the rock of the church, he's a leader among leaders. But he's a special case that you and I can see ourselves in, and this is why. Let's understand the gravity of Peter's experience. If you didn't know this, Peter was the inner circle of Jesus' entourage. He was the rock of the church. This book in the Bible called Acts, the first half of the book of Acts, is really about Peter's life and his ministry. I mean, he's a big deal. He was was probably strong. He was probably dynamic. He was fiery. He was a go-getter. You know, he's an activator. You know, Peter was somebody who was, he was just strong. He's a strong personality. And when Jesus gathers his people after he died on the cross and resurrects, he said, my plan is still going forward. I'm going to give the church. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. Peter, you're still my man. The reason that's so remarkable is because you have to know Peter's testimony. Peter was the one who said more than any of their disciples, said to jesus if everyone rejects you peter goes i'm going to stay with you i'm never going to deny you and the next moment what does peter do he rejects jesus three times and he actually brings the curse down on jesus that's peter he was big talk he had absolutely all talk and no action and certainly no it was public he rejected jesus he he denied jesus and he was supposed to be the inner circle of jesus i mean if you talk about hypocrites Peter is that hypocrite. If you talk about failures, Peter is that failure. If you talk about somebody who is a sinner, Peter represents this. And so after Jesus resurrected and said, I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to gather my church. I'm still moving forward with my plan. I'm going to gather disciples. He says, tell the disciples I'm coming. Also tell Peter. Now, if you're a Peter, after you've gone through that experience, what are you thinking? You hear the angel or somebody comes, Jesus is coming. He's going to start his church. Peter's probably thinking, I mean, this is how I would think. That's great. I'm no longer being part of this. I'm not going to be included. That's not going to be me. There's no way that Jesus is going to include me in part of his church. But what does Jesus do? He goes to Peter, and he says, I'm not just going to put you on probation. I'm going to make you a leader. I know you rejected me. I know you failed me. But in my kingdom, there's room for failures. There's room for the rejected. There are room for sinners. And he heals Peter and restores him. And he guides him back into a relationship with the Heavenly Father. So you and I are like Peter. There's probably sins that have tugged on our hearts, but then there's also a lot of failures and mistakes that we have that really riddle our identity. You know, Peter's problem at the end of the day is what this one Yale theologian Miroslav Volf has says Miroslav Volf has said that Peter's main problem is that he had a, a false identity. And in his book Exclusion and Embrace, he's recounting the story of Cain and Abel, the two brothers where they grew up and eventually Cain murdered Abel. And he's asking this question, why did Cain murder his younger brother Abel? It's because he had a false identity. Cain's identity was constructed around Abel. He was superior than Abel. He was older than Abel. He was better than Abel. He was greater than Abel. But once Abel began to gain a little bit traction and surpass Cain, Cain had two things to do. He could radically readjust his identity, or he has to get rid of Abel. And so he murdered Abel. A false identity. Wolf says murder was a result of cold logic, uh, the perverted self, in order to maintain its own false identity. And you and I do that too. We have all these perverted selves that maintain our false identity. In your beauty, in your looks, in your accomplishments. We have all kinds of idols that we attach our, we construct our identity around things and accomplishments. Riches, power, money, people, success your children. There's no shortage of things that we construct our identity around. But when the gospel comes into your life, you and I are like Peter. Peter also had his life constructed around others. He, had a, he said, I'm better than the other disciples. I'm never going to deny. He had a, he had a full of pride. I'm more passionate. I'm godlier. Peter absolutely had his identity built not around Jesus, but constructed around the other disciples, around his own pride, around his own morality. And once sinned his, it destroys all of that. It destroyed Cain's, and he ended up sinning and murdering Abel, and it destroyed Peter's, and it'll destroy you too. If you have your identity constructed around being better than someone else, or your identity constructed around accomplishments, through achievements and performance, it's only a matter of time before you realize you're going to fail. It's not going to satisfy. And that's when the gospel can come in. Just like Jesus does into Peter's life. Peter's not just the face of sin, he's the face of failure. The gospel speaks to both but jesus says if you sin and broke my commandments i forgive you i'll cleanse you with my blood if you feel like a failure then i'm going to give you an identity i'm going to give you my righteousness and if you live your life on my righteousness you'll have an identity you'll have a sense of belonging a sense of value that the world can never take away because you could be rich, and if you find your identity and money, it'll be taken away. If it's on power, one day you'll lose your position of power. If it's on looks, then I'm sorry to tell you, you're going to get older. If your identity is constructed around looks, you're just going to get wrinkly and get old and gray. But if your identity is built on the righteousness of Jesus, Christianity says, I give you something that the world can never take away. That's why Christianity's exclusiveness is so much more hopeful, because it goes to the fishermen of the disciples, it goes to the failures like Peter, but it also goes to the Nicodemuses of the world, the highly educated, it goes to the prostitutes, the tax collectors, it goes to the Roman guard, it goes to everyone, no matter what political affiliation that you have, socioeconomic demographic that you're part of. The gospel is entirely inclusive. It's not good versus bad people, it's those who are prideful versus humble, those who call out to Jesus and those who don't. Jesus says, this world is broken, is dark, but I'm going to give you my life. I'm not just going to forgive you for your sins. I'm going to give you a sense of worth and identity. You can feel good about yourself because you live your life constructed around the death and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus' righteousness given to you. Barbara Johnson has this wonderful quote. She says, you and I, if you're a believer, we are Easter people living in a good friday world good friday that's dark and broken and the world doesn't work the way it is there's death all around us there's injustice everywhere but we are the resurrection people of hope because we could live out of the righteousness of jesus no one could take that away we're inclusive we're broken we can come to jesus and cry out because at the end of the day friends my hope is not that you could just receive logical arguments about exclusivity of christianity or the historicity of the gospel account that's really needed but in this Bible what I'm trying to present to you is a person a real person a living spirit Jesus Christ who wants a relationship with you who died for you says I'll give you a forgiveness I'll give you an identity if you feel like a failure I'll give you a sense of purpose in life if you feel hopeless I'll give you a heavenly hope that can never be taken away because you are Easter people and you're living in a Good Friday world, in a world that's not yet fully what it's meant to be. As I pray that you'd wrestle with this. I pray that you'd embrace this. I pray that you'd be open to it. I pray that you explore this and be intellectually honest about what Christianity has to offer. Let's turn to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the grace that we receive in your Son. Thank you that Jesus was a real man who was a son of God that came into this world to take on human flesh and die for us. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus wants a personal relationship with each and every one of us. I pray that your spirit would open our hearts up to embrace and to see the glory and the majesty of a heavenly king who came down to die a criminal's death and rose again in power and newness of life, ushering in a wonderful kingdom and a home that we all can participate in, not because we're good, but because we're needy and sinful, not because we've accomplished, but because we cry out. So thank you so much for this grace, and we love you with all our hearts and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends,